All right, um, so if you meet either of them, congratulate them on having just a really exciting morning before <laughs> church, okay. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all uh, today for two weeks in a row. This is fun. Um, and not, so, not, not such a fun passage of scripture that I have. You wouldn't describe it as fun. It's great. It's not fun. Um, today in the Gospel of John, we reach the climactic, like, boiling point of uh, this text and this volume of uh, our series through the Gospel of John that we have called Confronting Jesus. Confronting Jesus. This is Jesus at his most confrontational. Jesus as most confrontational. This is one of the most intense passages in all of the Gospel of John, and at least tied for the harshest words that we have on record from Jesus. Um, and to complicate matters even further, uh, these words, these harsh words from Jesus are leveled directly at the Jews. Okay, so these are also words that have been used carelessly and even insidiously throughout history to promote violent anti-Semitism, right, anti-Jewish sentiment. And so we've got to be careful here. Uh, those who have done that, by the way, just are really bad at reading the Bible uh, because they would ignore or downplay the very obvious fact that uh, Jesus and all of his disciples were Jewish, okay? So when we're talking to the Jews, we're talking about a specific group that John is referring to. And so it's crucial this morning that as we hear this text, we hear it as the word of God to all of us, to humanity, and not just to them, okay? And just preaching this message this morning, it's my hope, it's my prayer that you would hear this as a scalpel, a surgeon's scalpel cutting out our pride and not as a club, okay? So, but let's get caught up. Let's uh, do some context work here. Uh, if you remember two weeks ago, Pastor Joe took us through John 5, and that chapter begins by Jesus coming to a festival in Jerusalem, and Jesus heals a disabled man on the Sabbath, okay? Uh, and this caused some grumbling. Talked about grumbling last week. It caused some grumbling among the authorities in Jerusalem because on a, you know, superficial judgment, judging by appearances, uh, it looked like Jesus was breaking the law by working on the Sabbath. And in his defense, Jesus calls God his own father, and they find this rather blasphemous. And so they move, this is John 5, 16 through 18, they move from just persecuting him to actually seeking to kill him. And so if you zoom out on John 5 through 8, bird's eye view, what we see is this spreading of a cancer called grumbling. The cancer of grumbling spreading throughout Israel, even infecting Jesus' own disciples, many of whom, the majority of whom, turn back and stop following him. It even infects his own family, his brothers, who try and hatch a plan for Jesus to win his base back. And so, um, Jesus, uh, in chapter 7, he heads back to the belly of the beast, back to Jerusalem, during the most popular festival of the year, 
the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And what we encounter there in chapter 7 and 8 is this massive, complex dialogue in the temple between Jesus and the authorities and the crowds. And here Jesus directly confronts them and he confronts their grumbling. And he says effectively, listen, I healed a man and you're seeking to kill me. Which one of us is breaking the law? <laughs> okay, so verse 24 of chapter 7, right, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Judge with right judgment. And then about halfway through chapter 8, so we're skipping forward, there seems to be a ray of hope in this conversation. Verse 30 of chapter 8, it says this, as he was saying these things, as he was teaching, as he was confronting, many believed in him. Many believed in him. And we might think, great, <laughs> you know, this, that's why John wrote his gospel, right? So that we might believe. And that's why John says the Father sent the Son, sent Jesus, so that we would believe and have eternal life. So they believe. That's wonderful. Um, but if, if we've been paying close attention to John's gospel, and especially in our signs volume that we did, uh, John has taught us to be a little bit careful, uh, even skeptical, of these initial professions of believing in John. Uh, you know, in chapter 2, says many believe, but Jesus doesn't believe in them, right? Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them because they only believe in him as this powerful miracle worker, and they just want him to do more, more miracles. In chapter 3, the great and mighty Nicodemus, the Pharisee, comes and says, we know you're from God. And Jesus doesn't go, oh, wow, so great to have you on the team, Nicodemus. We're glad you're here. Here's the offering bucket. You know, he's like, you have to be born again. And then in chapter 6, most of Jesus' own disciples, certainly believers, right, they're so offended by his teaching that they turn back and stop following Jesus. And so Jesus, we might say, is not interested in merely gathering a crowd, Jesus and John is not, you know, trying to up enrollment numbers at the University of Jesus, okay? He wants serious students who will count the cost of tuition and follow him to the end, all the way till they graduate, right? He wants them to count the cost and go the distance with him and endure. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to pick up verse 31 of chapter 8, and we're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. So all the way to verse 59. So I want to invite you, get ready to read, stand on up. We're going to stand to honor the reading of God's word. If you have, if you're having trouble seeing up there, there's a pew Bible for you underneath you, um, and we're on, on page 894. Chapter 8, starting with verse 31. All right, let's go. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide, stay, remain in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, uh, We are offspring of Abraham. And have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? 
Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain, right? Does not abide, does not continue in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, notice it was the truth that sets them free. Now it's the son, right? Because the son is the truth. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, then you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. (laughs) Hear the little overtone there? We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here, right? I would be your brother. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. Literally in the Greek, it's you cannot hear my word. If you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires, he was a murderer from the beginning, the devil, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Because I tell you the truth. That's why you cannot believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? (laughs) I get personal. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. He's not looking for their approval. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Yes. And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, if I make myself out to be anything, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? 
Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. (laughs) The divine name. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus pulled a Batman and hid himself and went out of the temple. That's not in the Bible, okay? Uh, You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. I just always wonder what that was like. You know, they're looking for rocks big enough in the temple, you know, and Jesus just puts the hood on and gets out of there, you know. It's not his time. Um, All right. Well, let's go back to verse 31 all the way at the beginning. Let's work our way through. If you abide in my word, if you stick around a while, then you'll know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. You'll truly be my disciples, you shall know the truth. Truth shall set you free. One of the most well-known, iconic, constantly quoted out of context verses in the history of humanity, right? Uh, The problem is that these words, right, truth and freedom, they come to mean all sorts of things that have very little to do with Jesus who claimed to be the truth, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's very little to do with Jesus in whom we have freedom and come to know what freedom means. In other words, we want abstract definitions for these words so we can apply them to Jesus, but Jesus is effectively saying you can't do that. You can't do that. You can only know truth and experience true freedom in a long-term relationship with me. In other words, these words don't define Jesus. Jesus is the definition of these words. So if you want to know truth, if you want to know freedom, experience freedom, you need to know Jesus. So he says to these so-called new believers, he says, okay, if you abide, if you stay, if you stick around, if you remain, if you continue, you persevere, you keep my word, my teachings, then you will truly be my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if you abide, that's the condition, then you will know That's the promise. So perseverance, we might say. Perseverance is the condition of true belonging, knowledge, and freedom. A relationship with Jesus, right? In most of our important relationships, that's kind of how it works. If you want to experience true friendship, true marriage, true church community, you got to stick around for a while. you got to abide, right? We will have the belonging. We will have the knowledge, the freedom that we seek if we Abide. It's the one who endures to the end who will be saved. So we, we might ask, you know, like why say this right now? You know, it's a little discouraging right off the bat, you know? Um, but we get the answer immediately in their response. We've never been slaves. Huh? We've never been slaves. What do you mean we'll become free? We, ha- we have all the freedom we need. Thank you very much. Now, It's just kind of an insane response if you think about it for a second, right? Because what is an Israelite? (laughs) By definition, a member of the people who were freed from slavery in Egypt. That's what they're going to be celebrating at the Passover in a little bit, you know? Like, that's who they are. And right now, right, in Jerusalem, to be a Jew in Jerusalem is to be in subjection to Rome, right? (laughs) 
I mean, it's, it's crazy. To say they've never been slaves is to forget who they are. It's to forget who they are. But it's this very insanity that Jesus is confronting. It's the insanity of pride. The insanity that comes with pride. Jesus confronts pride. We've already seen Jesus confront their hypocrisy, their complacency, their infidelity, their grumbling. Now we're going to get down, drill into the very heart their pride that's underneath it all. So Jesus says to these so-called new believers, it's only by abiding in my word, sticking around, that you will come to know me, the truth, who will set you free. And the whole rest of the chapter, get this, the whole rest of this chapter simply demonstrates the fact that they cannot abide his word. They cannot stand his teaching. They cannot swallow it. They choke on the very first teaching, the very first word. Why? Because the very first teaching of Jesus confronts our pride. The very first teaching of Jesus confronts their pride, their entitlement, their sense of privilege as children of Abraham, their prejudices towards the Samaritans, as we'll see. It confronts all that. Pride can't abide Jesus. Pride cannot abide Jesus. Jesus. See, the very first thing out of Jesus' mouth in his most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, to be poor in spirit is precisely the opposite of being proud, okay? And being poor in spirit in the Bible is usually the result, if you read the Old Testament, of being persecuted, being oppressed, being crushed by some strong enemy like Babylon. Those who are poor in spirit are blessed because God is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. He saves the poor in spirit. We have a God who delivers the oppressed so it doesn't look like the oppressed are blessed but Jesus is saying, I'm here to save you so they're blessed. And the difference in context, okay, there in the Sermon on the Mount and here at the temple in Jerusalem is who is he talking to? Not his disciples. He is talking to a group of people who are doing the persecuting. (laughs) Right? He's talking to a group of powerful officials seeking to kill him. And he's talking to a mob that is going to be stirred up by these powerful officials. Right, who's going to have the flames of their pride stoked up into mob violence. That's who Jesus is talking to. Jesus is not talking to a group that is poor in spirit. And so Jesus says over and over again, you cannot hear me. You cannot hear me. Like he'll say to Peter, very similarly, you cannot follow me now. You remember that? You cannot follow me now, Peter. Peter, until we get that pride crucified. Until we get that pride dealt with and you learn to walk by the power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit rather than your own power and wisdom, Peter, it's going to go really bad for you. Peter, you're going to fall flat on your face. But Peter, I'm going to come for you. I'm going to come for you. I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to restore you. It's a very similar message here, but without all the encouragement at the end, right? So he's not talking to his disciples. He's talking to a group that is going to kill him and some of his disciples And Jesus knows it. So a good analogy for this section is a 
Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5, when Jesus eats dinner with some well-known and like officially canceled sinners, okay, and this little action uh, sets the Pharisees to grumbling, okay, and so Jesus confronts them and he says, listen, it's not the healthy who need a physician, who need a doctor, it's the sick, I didn't come for the righteous, I came for sinners. I didn't come for the righteous for you, I came for sinners. Now is Jesus saying that the Pharisees are really righteous? (laughs) No, right? He's inviting them to dinner. (laughs) He's like, come sit down and join the sinners, join the human race, okay? Like, come and sit down. He's inviting them to join them. He, He means their problem is that they think they're too righteous for dinner with Jesus, right? They think they're righteous. They think they're on the right side of the culture war and that God's just so happy to have them on his team, right? The sinners at the table, they don't harbor any such illusions, you know? They know they need help. Here in John 8, Jesus is saying the same thing but without the clever saying about physicians, okay? He's just saying it straight, straight up. He says, listen, you are slaves. You're slaves to sin, Your pride has you in denial. It's the intervention moment, right? It's the intervention moment. Talks to the most self-righteous people he can find and says, you have a sin problem. (laughs) You have a sin problem. You know, actually, intervention and addiction is a great analogy, perfect analogy here. What is it that keeps millions of people enslaved to an addiction from taking a step to asking for help? It's pride, right, and denial. It's pride and denial. Uh, The very first step, if you're familiar at all with Alcoholics Anonymous, the very first step of recovery is this. We admitted we were powerless, slaves, right, powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. That's the very first step to healing, to recovery from any addiction, admitting you are powerless, right? Stepping out of denial, and into God's grace, into God's help. It's acceptance. It's, you know what? I, I have a problem. I have a problem with this, and I, I need help. <laughs> and if you skip that step, right, if you skip that humbling step, the more religious you become, the worse off you are, and everyone around you, <laughs> okay? The worse off you are, the more religious you become. If religious performance is like your drug of choice, self-righteousness, right? If what, if what gets you highest you know, is listening to, reading, watching things that, you know, confirm your suspicion that I really am right about everything and therefore better than other people, you know? If that's your drug, ooh, woe to you, man, you know? Pride and religion mixed to make a very bad cocktail. Jesus gives his harshest smelling salts to proud religious types because he knows we're the most dead inside. So the foundational truth of Jesus' teaching is hard to abide, but we must abide in to experience freedom is that we really are slaves. We really are slaves to sin. Freedom begins with knowing your slavery. Freedom begins with knowing your slavery. But remember, sin, what is sin? It simply means missing the mark. Missing the mark, right? Missing becoming who we were created to be. So in other words, we are powerless to become who we were created to be without confronting our pride 
and choosing to receive God's help. We're powerless to become who we were created to be without confronting our pride daily. Not a one-time thing, right? Moment by moment and choosing to learn to receive God's help. Jesus confronts our pride to help us become the people he made us to be. So we've seen that in love, Jesus confronts pride. He confronts pride. Why? Because it's the mother of all sins, as C.S. Lewis said. It's the mother of all sins. It's a sickness which keeps us from the belonging, the knowledge, the freedom that we seek. Pride keeps us from, from change, from becoming the people who we were meant to be. So it's very important, I want us to consider, how do we know if we're suffering symptoms of pride, <laughs> you know? How do we see pride? What does pride do when confronted? What does pride do when confronted? This is really crucial because the way we grow as believers, the way we grow in Christians, can't be separated from growing in humility, right? We're all seeking to grow in humility. But the way we grow consciously in humility, right? Things can happen outside of our control that humble us. But the way we kind of cooperate with the Spirit of God and consciously grow in humility is simply by noticing our pride. Not, not beating ourselves up for it, but just, ah, there it was. There it is, you know. Noticing our pride. This is important. We don't grow in humility by trying super hard to be humble. <laughs> You'll end up just being manipulative, okay? If you try really, really hard to be humble, what happens as soon as you think you're getting somewhere? <laughs> it's just pride, right? We don't grow in humility by trying really hard to be humble, but by being what Peter calls sober-minded and watchful. Just, just watchful. Noticing our pride. And we've already seen that the first thing that pride does when confronted is denial. It denies. We've never been slaves. <laughs> Completely irrational denial. And Jesus says, listen, whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. Whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. For example, if I lie, what am I? A liar. <laughs> if I consistently lie, I'm a liar. The first step is to just admit it. And now look what happened. I'm already a truth teller, you know? Was that so hard? We did it, right? They don't take that step. They don't take that first step. They don't admit. They don't accept. They go to strategy two, deflect. They say, Abraham is our father, verse 39. They cling to their sense of entitlement based on their ancestry. I was thinking about this. It's kind of like being like, I don't have a drug problem. No one in my family has a drug problem. Well, what does that have to do with your drug problem, you know? It's like, I'm, I, I live in Pleasanton, it's just prescription, it's not, I'm not like a drug eat, right? It's like, what does that have to do with the addiction? Nothing, right? Nothing at all. It's totally irrelevant. This is my favorite, this is my personal favorite one, I use this one all the time. I can't struggle with anger. I've been a Christian too long, <laughs> right? I've been a Christian too long. I should have dealt with this by now, right? Shame gets involved and it's like a whole thing, right? Or I'm a Christian leader. That leads to a lot of scandals, that one, okay? I can't struggle with that. I already dealt with that a long time ago. I, 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 can't, I don't struggle with that. I know all about it. I read a book about it. <laughs> I, you know, I can't struggle with that. I know a ton of people who struggle with that. I know all about that. I don't, I don't struggle with that, right? It's just, none of that's relevant. It's just rationalizing. It's deflecting. 
So Jesus goes along with it. He says, okay, if you were a child of Abraham, the man of faith, then would you be seeking to kill me? <laughs> he focuses on their behavior. And instead of answering, they say, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Now this is really rich, okay? N notice an insane irony here, okay? By the way, this is number three. <laughs> they double down, okay? They double down, they dig in their heels, they defend, they defend, they defend. But notice the incredible irony. Do you remember back in chapter five, why are they seeking to kill Jesus? For claiming God was his own father. For claiming God was his own father. We have one father, even God. <laughs> what? Right? So, so we're getting to the truth here. It's coming out, right? Their rage at calling God his father apparently had to do with the implicit suggestion that he might not be their father, right? And so Jesus just confirms it, right? He says, you are of your father, the devil, verse 44. He says, the devil spiritually lied and spiritually murdered the first humans. You are lying about me and seeking to kill me. The results of your paternity test are in, right? The father is the devil. Whoa, you know? It's now, sorry, you're going to have that in your head forever. It's like one of those tacky daytime TV moments, right? And he's not just being mean, okay? And he's not, he's not saying that, you know, you're, you're not children of Abraham. He's, he's not speaking about biology here. They're not biologically related to the devil. He's talking about behaviorally. He's focusing on behavior that can be owned up to, that can change, right? So do they do that? Do they let their pride die? Do they humble himself and recognize that Jesus has just wiped the floor with them in this debate? No, 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 no. They don't do that. They resort to pride's final strategy in defeat. They demonize. They demonize. Verse 48. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Oh, man. So recall the, the Jews and the Samaritans, they hated each other, right? We talked about this, and the, the crux of the issue was which one of them are the true Israel, okay? Which one of them are the true Israel? Because the other one then is a bunch of idolatrous half-breeds, okay? So that was the ugly argument that was there. And follow the logic here. So Jesus, you know, comes and he talks to like the leaders of Jerusalem and says, you're not true children of Abraham. And they're like, well, okay, if you're going to, cast doubt on our status, then you must be siding with the Samaritans. And they think, you know, Jesus, he's from up north past Samaria somewhere. He's got a hillbilly accent. He's from Podunk, Nazareth. You know, you know what? He really is a Samaritan, I bet, you know? He really is a Samaritan if he's willing to question us. It's similar, um, you know, to the way in uh, politics in America today. Politics have become religion, right? So it's no longer like, oh, you know, what's the What's the best policy for the common good? It's like, this is who I am, right? And it's gotten very, very ugly. Um, and to the point where lots of people are writing about the fact that uh, few will criticize their own. Few will risk criticizing their own party because the, they'll be labeled a traitor, right? Um, you know, so if, if you're criticizing us, then you really must be one of those liberal snowflakes in disguise. You know, you really must be one of those fundamentalist bigots. That's who you really are. So it's safer just to stick to demonizing. You know, just to stick to demonizing the other side rather than confront your own, let alone your own self. 
And as we can see in our text and in our country, pride and denial, they're not just individual things. They can become pathologized on a national level. But when things get ugly, Jesus doesn't take the bait. He doesn't take the bait or take the bait when the name calling starts. Uh, he's not a Samaritan, but notice he doesn't say like, oh, I'm not a Samaritan, how dare you, you know? He doesn't approve of that. Um, he simply says, verse 49, I do not have a demon. I do not have a demon. I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Right? Speaks right to their behavior. You dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. In other words, you misunderstand me. I'm not after your approval ratings. I'm not after your approval, only my father's. Jesus would be a terrible politician. (laughs) And then in his amazing grace, Jesus returns to the beginning and he makes the offer again. Makes the offer again. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, anyone keeps my word, abides in my word, he will never see death. And Jesus, as usual, is misunderstood by being taken literally. And they say, now we know you have a demon. Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? That's what pride sounds like when it's pushed to its limit. That's what pride does when confronted. They won't let their pride die, so they deny and they deflect and they double down and they demonize. They won't let their pride die. It just becomes more and more wounded until they're ready to kill or be killed like a cornered animal. They deny, they deflect, they double down, they demonize. In one word, they defend. They get defensive. So real practical here. How do you grow in humility? How might you practice growing in humility? The next time, or try every time, you're confronted by your, your spouse, by your boss, by your coworker, your kids, next time you're confronted, don't react. Just take some breaths. Take some breaths. Notice any defensiveness rising up in you. Go ahead and join the human race. Accept that it's pride. (laughs) This is pride at work in me. Now don't respond until you've done the work to surrender whatever rationalizations that you have and hear from the other person's point of view. Now, just a warning. People are going to think you're weird at first. Like, why are you just sitting there breathing, man? Why don't you say something? (laughs) Uh, But, you know, as you learn to respond from that place, uh, you'll actually be rather refreshing in your workplace or your home. People will notice right away, and it'll challenge some things. So, start to wrap up, okay? We've seen why Jesus confronts pride. Pride is a sickness. It's the mother of all sins. It's underneath even grumbling, right? It keeps us from becoming free. It keeps us from becoming the people we are created to be. It keeps us from the belonging we seek. It keeps us from knowing ourselves truly and knowing God. It keeps us from walking in freedom and self-control. It ruins us. And so Jesus, in love, like a good doctor, confronts it. We've seen what pride does when it's confronted. It denies, it def- it's, just, it's defensive, okay? It's defensive. That's what pride does. In our marriage class, we called this our protectors coming up, okay? So what, finally, can we learn now from Jesus about how and when to confront someone else's pride? 
How and when to confront someone else? What can we learn from Jesus? Right? He is our ultimate peacemaker. He is our poor in spirit, pure in heart peacemaker. What wisdom can we glean from this passage about how and when to confront others? First of all, I would say, rarely and carefully. The first and fifth one of these are the most important. Okay? Rarely and carefully. Remember last week, what was Jesus doing before this? He was laying low. Right? He, he was getting away from all this. And then the father told him to go. So he went. Not because his brothers put pressure on him, right? But the father told him to go and teach, so he went and taught. And finally, when things got really ugly and the stones started flying, what did Jesus do? He left. He left. Jesus' goal clearly was not to pick a fight. Jesus' goal was not to stir up violence. Jesus' goal was to provide an opportunity for repentance. That was Jesus' goal. And frankly, I think we can all admit none of us are Jesus. <laughs> none of us are Jesus, so most of us are certainly not up to this at the level Jesus is doing it. Um, and secondly, we're just not called to do it very often. We're really not. Um, we're certainly not called to relish in it. And we're actually explicitly called, this is helpful, in 1 Timothy 2, to pray for all people, including our enemies and our leaders, both good and evil, right? And quote, so that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. As Paul puts it later on in Thessalonians, he says, make it your ambition, your goal, to lead a quiet life, to lead a quiet life. So when we come to appreciate, right, like in ourselves, just how slippery, how true, we abide with Jesus for a while, we start to be like, man, this pride thing is a tricky beast. <laughs> when we start to see that, uh, we are so much more likely to pray for someone than pick a fight with them because we know it's probably not going to do much good, right? And so we're more likely to do that, to take the log out of our own eye. And that's why, you know, in apprenticeship and discipleship to Jesus, insofar as it involves confrontation, is first and foremost with our own hypocrisy, our own complacency, our own grumbling, our own denial and pride and self-righteousness. So that's really, really important, rarely and carefully. Uh, but there are moments, okay? There are moments. We're not called to relish confrontation, but, this word is to me, we're not called to avoid it either, okay? So, in those moments, we see that Jesus, number two, has a radical commitment to the truth. A radical commitment to the truth. Right? Even to the point, like, there's zero even false humility, right? He's not like, oh, what do I know? Maybe you'd consider. Like, he's like, no, I know God. If I said I didn't, if I said I didn't know the Father, uh, then I would be a liar like you. <laughs> he's radically committed to the truth. And for us who know far less than Jesus, right, we've got to watch out for all the assumptions we tend to make in confrontation about the other person's intentions, all sorts of that stuff. We've got to be radical, radically committed to the truth. And part of what that looks like is a focus on observable behavior. That's number three. Focus on observable behavior, okay? Not spinning theories, right, making assumptions, but Jesus, for example, in verse 49, he says, you, I do not have a demon. You're dishonoring me right now. That's, that's unacceptable, right? He just calls it out baldly, focuses on the observable behavior. Number four, he resists appeasing and getting defensive. So often when we rush to confrontation, we haven't 
done the work to realize like we're actually seeking the approval of the person we're confronting right now. And so then as soon as things get difficult, now we're trying to appease or we're, we're, you know, we're getting defensive, right? Verse 50, I do not seek my own glory. He's not after their approval, only his father's. And finally, and most importantly, he's willing to die. He's willing to die. His opponents are not willing to die, right? So they deny, deflect, double down, and demonize. Jesus is willing to die. Now for us, this is being willing to die for ourselves, right? We're not always going to be right in confrontation. We're going to have to own our part most of the time, right? Sometimes just admit we were flat wrong. That's a part of denying ourselves. But Jesus was willing to die. Not here, in chapter 8, remember he pulls the Batman. <laughs> not here, because it's not his time. But ultimately, ultimately the good news this morning is this is not Jesus at his most confrontational. This is not Jesus' ultimate confrontation with human sin and with pride. When is Jesus' ultimate confrontation with sin? The cross. It's when he goes silently silently, like a lamb led to the slaughter, to die for our sins. That is Jesus' ultimate confrontation with sin. Jesus isn't about, in the end, winning debates. He's about winning hearts. And in the end, it's his love. It's his love and kindness that humbles our hearts and brings us to true turning from sin, true repentance, and thus to true belonging in a company of sinners called to be saints together. It brings us to true knowledge of ourself and God and true freedom, true liberation to be the people that God created us to be 